0: Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome
1: back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're talking about the SECURE Act 2.0. Uh, while we were off celebrating the holidays and time with families, we bring in the new year, the government was uh, passing a pretty meaty piece of legislation. In this episode, we're going to talk about uh, the major changes and provisions and how they might impact oil and gas retirees. We're also going to talk about uh, some potential planning opportunities related to that. And then we're also going to talk about, okay, who are, the, who are the big winners and losers uh, of this bill?
0: So, Justin, where do you want to start? I think we should start with Secure Act 1, which was, Jared, what, three years ago or so? And if we start there, that's helpful to kind of frame the conversation of what do our listeners need to know about changes in tax law, changes in estate law, and how it can affect their financial plan. So, should we start there? Yep. You want to just give
1: a brief overview of, of that and kind of set the context of why
0: How is that connected to the legislation we're talking about today? Awesome. Okay. Secure Act 1.0. So a few years ago, this was passed and enacted into law, and it was probably the most uh, sweeping change to retirement plan laws or or laws that retained uh, retirement plans uh, in at least a decade. Um, So here's the big things you need to know from the first SECURE Act, um, the required minimum distribution age. So if you have a 401k or an IRA, uh, the IRS forces you to take out an annual income distribution from those accounts once you turn 72 years old. So the first big change in Secure Act 1.0 was that used to be 70. Now you can wait until you're 72, until you're forced to take out a taxable distribution. Why does that matter? Why, does, why do required minimum distributions, uh, why should they mean anything to you? Well, if you are an oil and gas retiree, and if you have, uh, let's say, more than $2.5 million in an IRA or 401k or pension combined, Well, then you potentially have a really large future tax liability. Um, And so the age at which required minimum distributions begin matters a lot because that's going to determine how much is your income going to be starting at 70 or 72 every year for the rest of your life. So that matters a lot. Uh, And there was another change to RMD age and, and procedure in the newest Secure Act bill last week, but even bigger than that. So I'm just going to focus on the single most important thing of Secure Act 1.0, and that was the removal of the stretch inherited IRA. Let me speak in plain English. If you, if you inherit an IRA uh, from a parent, uh, for example, if you inherit an IRA from a spouse and you're, say, five years apart um, as, as spouses, uh, you get to just take that and put it in your IRA and you're not necessarily impacted uh, but if you inherit an IRA from your parents, so let's say your mom or dad is uh, 97 years old and they pass away and they have $3 million in an IRA and it all goes to you, you do not get to keep that in an IRA you either have to remove all of that $3 million from their IRA and get taxed on all of it, or you can open what's called an inherited IRA, and it has to be done properly. Uh, the naming and titling on that inherited IRA has to be done in a specific way. The transition from um, your parents' original IRA to your inherited IRA that has hopefully been titled properly, there, there ha- that transition has to be done properly, and if you follow those rules, you're allowed to hold that money in an inherited IRA. So five years ago, you were allowed to take lifetime distributions on that $3 million inherited IRA in our example. Um, That saves you an enormous amount in taxes. Uh, Typically, the people that inherit IRAs from their parents are already 40, 50, 60 years old, and they're in prime earning years. So they have their own income. So let's pretend that you're 50 years old and you inherit an IRA from from a parent Um, you likely are making a lot more money than you did when you were 25. Uh, So you have your income that already puts you into a high tax bracket and then you have to take income from this retirement account and that income has to be taxed. So Secure Act 1, massive change. This is a very big deal. You now are not allowed to stretch out those small distributions over your lifetime, which could be 50 years. Um, So you could be taking a tiny portion every year. You now have to take out the entire IRA you inherit within ten years. So, if you already have a high income yourself, and you have to take out the entire IRA within ten years, and in my example, I just threw out three million, uh, which is a pretty big IRA. But if, if that's your situation, you better be taking out three hundred thousand per year. All of that is taxed as income on top of on top of whatever income you're already making. So, pretty big change in the taxation of inherited pre-tax retirement accounts. Now, if you forget to take out a distribution in one of those 10 years, well, you have to take the entire thing out within 10 years. So if you forget for five years, or let's do an extreme example, you're not paying attention to the rules, you don't know the rules, uh, or your advisor isn't overseeing this, and you go nine years without taking anything out. And in the 10th year, it's grown from 3 million to 4 million. Well, then you would have to take out the entire 4 million in one year. And that would be a massive absolutely massive tax bill for you. Depending on what state you're in, if you're in the wrong state, uh, you could actually have a $2 million tax bill on that retirement distribution. So Secure Act 1.0, very big deal because it has huge implications on how pre-tax retirement accounts are taxed when they're inherited. And so uh, with that being said, Jared, anything you would add or can we just jump right into Secure Act 2.0 and how it builds on the first legislation? (laughs) Yeah. I like your verbiage of building. Like I think 1.0 is a bigger deal,
1: right? Like in terms of like, okay, what's the what's the bottom line to oil and gas retirees that usually are overweight pre-tax assets? You know, I don't think 1.0 is going to be as big of a deal, but there's just a lot more little things versus this one big thing, which is the
0: death of the stretch IRA for uh, non-spouse, non-designated beneficiaries. So can I say something just right on the front end that essentially spills all the beans of what we're going to talk about? Yeah, if you have substantial assets, and I would even say, I mean, Jared, I think if if you have more than two million dollars, um, or if you are, if your parents do, and you're going to inherit that, I think with Secure Act 1.0 and what we're building on with the most recent legislation last week, I think it just means that you better know all of these tax laws, or your advisor better know them for you. Exactly right, and we'll talk more about that in Winners the Losers. So. Uh,
1: in Secure Act 2.0, got to give credit to Jeffrey uh, Levine and the team at Kitsis. We'll definitely link to the source article in the show notes. He is awesome uh, in kind of digesting this as it comes out and talking about the most important thing. So a lot of things we're getting from this episode came from a piece that he released. So first thing I want to talk about, uh, RMD, RMD confusion, if you will. So like Justin said, Secure Act 1.0 moved back RMDs. Uh, to age 72. Uh, and now there's new legislation and it's going to push it back to age 75, depending on when you were born. So if your birth year was 1950 or earlier, uh, that was 72 or 70 and a half uh, if you turned 70 and a half before 2020. Uh, if your birth year was 1951 and 1959, your RMD is now going to be age 73, age at which you begin. Uh, and then if you were born after 1960, your RMD will be 75. Justin, why does
0: that matter to, uh, to oil and gas retirees? Two reasons. Your years before RMDs. So if you are listening to this and you're 62, well, you've got a ways to go until you're 72, 73, or 75. Those years or that decade before RMDs start, that's when you need to be doing big tax planning if you don't do really substantial tax planning in the years before RMDs, you have lost most of your chance uh, to lower your lifetime tax rate and to lower the tax rate that your family uh, will be subject to on the assets that they inherit from you. So that's the first reason. Uh, The second reason, I think we may even dig into this later, Uh, but RMDs carry one of the most Horrible penalties in the entire tax code. If you miss an RMD, uh, let's see, it was a 50% tax penalty. I think they toned that down to 25%. So those are the reasons I would give. Anything you'd add, Jared? Yeah, no,
1: I would just say it extends the the golden window that we call it, right? And like tax planning, where you're gonna have more years where your income is gonna be lower because RMDs have not started or could potentially be lower, right? There's a lot of nuance and wrinkle there. But you know, there's more time to potentially implement Roth conversions, qualified charitable distributions, things like that, and de- delaying Social Security, right? Anything, uh, filling up the 0% cap gains bracket, these,
0: these low to no income years, uh, you have more of those available to you. Jared, I just thought of something. So another tax planning opportunity that never makes sense for our demographic, because for most of the people we serve, it's uh, capital gains optimization. So taking advantage of a zero percent capital gains bracket, or it's Roth conversions. So one of the tax planning opportunities that we really don't get to dive into is tax free Social Security, because it's not as value. There's not as much meat on the bone. It's not as valuable as some other tax opportunities. If RMD age is pushed back that far, it is possible that you could wait on social security until 70, get the get the highest amount of social security possible, and you could have three, four, five years of that social security income being tax free, theoretically. So I'm not even going to dive into the weeds on that because there's a lot that goes into it. But technically it's possible. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, and two, right? That's another thing where the, the window is finite because the moment RMDs kick in, you're likely, you know, going to have taxable social Social Security, especially if you're pre-tax. Back to eighty five percent of Social Security taxable, hundred percent. But it's all trade offs, right? So I think that's that's the the big one of the big things, right? RMDs, and I, I would call this RMD confusion, right? Because now there's more start dates, and when your RMD happens, it's not it's not seventy and a half for everybody. There's four potential start dates depending on uh, depending on your birth year, so. Let's go to the next thing. And I I'm I got to admit I'm surprised at this. I thought Roth was moving in the opposite direction. There was a lot of commentary, if you will, saying that Roth was being phased out, Roth was under attack. And, you know, I don't hopefully I can go back and listen to the podcast and find somewhere where I said I don't think that's going to be the case, but I'm not surprised by this actually as, as many people are because Roth assets get tax revenue today, right? So you know, there was a lot of things about taking away Roth benefits, but this legislation actually enhanced Roth benefits. Uh, so, Justin, you want to talk about uh, some of the some of the Roth changes that we saw in this piece of legislation?
0: Yes, and so to reiterate, two things that you've said that I want to just kind of reiterate: there is a golden window in tax planning. And you need to understand it and take advantage of it. If you have a few million dollars, you have a massive opportunity. If you have more than $5 million, you really do have a very, very large opportunity for your golden window of tax planning. Now with Roths, so reiterate what you just said too, Roths are still good. Um, this legislation really just came in and said, we support Roths and we're not doing away with them. We're not getting rid of Roth. We're not getting rid of Roth conversions. We're not getting rid of backdoor Roth. So let's see. Some of the things that we need to point out. Uh, plan Roths. Very interesting. So Roth 401k, no longer subject to RMDs. Uh, simple and SEP Roth IRAs. Uh, employer can make Roth contributions, not just employee. That's fascinating. If you're listening to this and you you have a 401k, you may already know this, but you as an employee can decide whether you want to do pre-tax or Roth. Um, but uh, the employer, if they match, they do not get that decision. They don't get to decide. Uh, uh, historically, all employer matching contributions have to be pre taxed. So, some potential changes there. Uh, Catch up contributions required to become Roth for wages greater than 145. Let's see. Uh, increased opportunities for self employed persons. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that I just want to say is you're still allowed to do Roths. So, a lot of great Roth planning. It's not off the table. And kind of talking about what
1: you're saying with simple and SEP. like a lot of these Roth changes positively impact self-employed persons. And you might be saying, Hey, I'm an oil and gas retiree. What does that have to do with me? A lot of our clients, when they retire full-time from a super major, they end up doing, whether it be consulting or starting their own thing, or just kind of a side hustle, or just working in some contractor capacity. So The expansion of adding Simple and SEP Roth IRAs just allows you another way to get more Roth
0: dollars into that bucket if you have uh, self-employed wages. And if we zoom out and try to think about, hey, what are macro changes happening to the landscape of work and employment in the next 20 years? I don't think it's crazy to think that there could be way more 1099 contractors rather than I'm a W-2 employee solely of Chevron. or ExxonMobil, or ConocoPhillips. Entirely possible that the floodgates open a little bit and you become more of a independent contractor making similar or even higher wages. And I mean, that's essentially what retirees are doing. Uh, And you then have a lot of different Roth retirement plan options that are on the table. So interesting stuff. Yeah. So 10,000 foot level Roth,
1: not only we didn't take any step backwards, but energy is showing that they're wanting to push steps forward. So uh, that's great. And we feel really excited about that because like we've talked about many times on the pod, we are very pro Roth. Let's talk about the, I would say the final, I guess one of the final big 10,000 foot provisions that I thought was interesting. And that was 529s. 529s are interesting too, because you and I have talked about this in another podcast, but Historically, they've been really interesting. They become less interesting, especially in a t- state like Texas, where you don't get a state income tax deduction on your contribution. And the nature of uh, higher education is kind of—it's undergoing massive disruptions. There's a lot of questions. Of, okay, how how good are uh, how good are 529s if if there's no if if there's a decent probability that my kid doesn't go to school or goes to a trade school or just goes directly to the workforce, um, and so the changes that have been made to 529s recently have kind of made them kind of put, I would say, put them back on the radar. One of them happened, I can't remember, it was uh, before Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but it was a piece of legislation that allowed uh, 529 contributions to go to uh, private education, right? So now you don't necessarily need need to use it for four-year university, you could use it for private K through 12. And that expanded it and made it more interesting. And then some of the legislation that we'll talk about here uh, also kind of makes it more interesting. So one of the big callouts here is, this got a lot of headlines, but basically you can move funds to a Roth IRA from a 529. And so that's really exciting. It's not, you know, I wouldn't fund it because of this It's kind of a grabbing headline. We'll talk about like the implications of okay, how it actually works. So a couple of call outs. So you can only up, do up to $35,000 cumulatively is the maximum dollar amount, which is, you know, potentially less than one year at a, at a college, depending on the college you're going to. Uh, the annual limit of how much you can contribute. How much can you move from a 529 to a Roth IRA? Uh, there's an annual limit there, so you can't just do th- all thirty six thousand in one year. You could do the annual limit, which is six thousand or seven thousand on on an annual basis, till you hit that thirty five k max. So I will say there's a lot of confusion and questions surrounding changing beneficiaries. So is this uh, people are hypothesizing that this is one and done thing? You can only do it for one beneficiary, one you know the 529 one time. So if if, you, if you're the beneficiary of an IR uh, of a 529, and then the beneficiary's changed, you don't get another window to do another 36K Roth, basically conversion from a 529. This seem, it appears to be a one time, but we'll need additional clarification there. But at the 10,000 foot level, I get excited for our clients who are you know have younger kids and they're less certain on. Uh, fully funding 529, or even what their college funding strategy is going to be. It's another escape valve to get things out of the account and potentially kickstart a, kickstart a beneficiary's, uh, tax-free growth. So, you know, we're weary of, we're, we're a little bit leery of overfunding a 529 and don't recommend, usually don't recommend fully funding it because there's just so much uncertainty and confusion, especially the younger your kids are, but having this provision, uh, Give us a little more, little more confidence, and a little more future optionality, if you will, with this plan.
0: I think the only thing I would add on this point is, uh, I think you mentioned this, Jared, but you have to have the five twenty nine open for fifteen years to be eligible to do this. If I'm reading this correctly, so it's got to be open for a long, long time. So, you know, it's exciting that you could maybe move. Five twenty nine excess funds into a Roth IRA, but you do need to understand that boy, there's massive limitations on on doing this at all. Uh, no contributions made in the last five years are eligible, uh, if I'm seeing this right. And you're still subject to uh, amount limits. So if you're only allowed to put in 6000 a year into a Roth IRA, well, you can only do 6000 as the transfer from 529 to Roth. And here's the other thing that I'm not even sure on. Uh, by the way, um, I don't even know if you're over the income limit, if that disqualifies you. So if you make, uh, right now, I think the 2023 income limit for a Roth IRA is 228000 married filing joint, AGI. So if you make 245000 Uh, Does that disqualify you from moving 529 funds into a Roth IRA? I will say this. uh, It is another vote of confidence that 529s are going to have lots of flexibility. So there's been a lot of laws with 529s to make them as flexible as possible, uh, and this is another another uh, emphatic statement from the federal government saying that we want these accounts to be flexible. Um, so that helps, but there are t- there are many many limitations on getting 529 funds into a Roth. Um, anything else we need to cover, Jared? No, I would just say if you're
1: an oil and gas retiree and you're funding education. This is something where it could be interesting if you have young kids, if your kids are pretty close to college, probably isn't going to change your funding strategy very much, but it is something to to be aware of.
0: And I just want to spend 30 seconds. And again, uh, I do think a lot of consideration needs to go into whether or not you put money into a 529 and how much money you put into a 529. Uh, We've done a lot of pieces on how rare it is for high income individuals and families to save lots of after-tax brokerage dollars. Uh, so most people don't have a whole lot of money in a brokerage investment account, and those are the most flexible accounts of all. Uh, it's not tied to any laws from the IRS with retirement or college plans. Um, so, you know, a, there's there's a lot that goes into your personal financial plan on whether it's in your best interests and how much you should fund and and stuff like that. So, I think that probably covers it. Okay.
1: We'll talk about some of the other provisions now. So there's a lot of other stuff that we won't spend as much time on, but wanted to draw your attention to. Um, And I guess the first one is the qualified plan catch-up. So this is for uh, 401k accounts. So historically the catch-up contribution for people over age 50 has been locked. It hasn't been indexed for inflation. That's changing. It is is getting indexed for inflation, which is a nice uptick. And the other thing I would call out is there's a special increase for those... uh, over age 60 from age 60 to 63 you have an additional catch like a special catch up so it's the greater greater of 10,000 or 150% of the regular catch up so uh, so if the you know if the catch up inflation adjusted goes to 10% then you could contribute 15 so that's that's an exciting development and another opportunity for those who are you know working longer to continue to sock away more aggressively it's not We're not spending much time on it because it's not, you know, that's not going to move the needle in your life, but it is something interesting to be aware of. And you're going to want to update your planned contributions accordingly.
0: Yep. And then we also have, let's see, uh, we mentioned this, RMDs, if you mess up on your RMDs, you don't take them. The penalty goes down from 50% to 25%. Uh, Let's see, solo 401ks, you have until the tax filing deadline to open and fund instead of December 31st, which is kind of funny, Jared, didn't we just do a podcast that talked about that needing to be done on December 31st Uh, (laughs) uh, weeks ago? And so now that has, uh, you know, changed. And Gosh, that sure leads into our winners and losers point. But let's see. We also have some four hundred one k exceptions um, for victims of domestic abuse, terminal illness, disaster distributions. So some more exceptions on accessing money there. And Justin, I'll call out for disaster distributions.
1: That historically was a one time thing. Uh, you know, a lot of people and a lot of podcast listeners will know about the provision for Hurricane Harvey. So being able to take from your our IRA. Uh, 401k penalty free for that. That was temporary. So essentially what it's doing is it's creating more, making that permanent and creating more opportunities for kind of redefining what are some instances where you can take from a qualified plan. Um, and of course, you know, just because you have, there's more provisions for that doesn't mean it's necessarily in the best, uh, in your best interest. Uh, but you want to meet with a trusted professional to do that. So let's get to my favorite part, which is The winners and losers. So, Justin, who would you say are the winners and
0: losers of this new piece of legislation? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head that self-employed people are going to have more options with retirement plans. That helps. Uh, Maybe a little bit of winners on the 529 side to have more flexibility. And something you hit on early, Jared. A lot of oil and gas uh, retirees will retire and then start a consulting business and essentially have an encore career. So a lot of options if you do that. Now uh, and then, losers. I want to reiterate something I said early on. If you have you know two three million dollars in assets, there's a lot of things you can do to lower your lifetime tax rate. But if you have more than five million in assets, I mean there is just an abundance of things. There's so many things. And your difference in lifetime tax rates between planning really well, getting into the weeds of your tax return, your estate plan, all of your balance sheet, and all of your different accounts, getting into the weeds, doing excellent planning. Uh, if you have more than $5 million compared to not doing really detailed, excellent planning, I mean, that can easily be a seven-figure difference in lifetime taxes. Uh, And so the losers are going to be, you know, folks that do not dive into the weeds of the tax code or people who do not have a trusted professional uh, understanding the ins and outs of all of the moving parts with retirement plan legislation, different areas of our tax code and how to um, appropriately manage your personal plan in light of those things.
1: Yeah, Justin. I would say we are both. And those are all spot on. I would say we are both winners and losers in this scenario. We are winners in the sense that right, this creates complexity, uh, which is good for our business. Right, you know, just full transparency. It helps. You know, when things are complex and the mistakes and consequences are high, it's a great opportunity to to hire and delegate. So so we're a winner because it creates more opportunities but we're also a loser because it's an administrative nightmare, right? Like you and I were talking before the podcast started is, you know, it used to be a lot simpler. RMD age used to be 70 and a half. You could push RMDs back to age 70. So the golden window was just kind of, you know, when you retired to 70 and a half. Now you have Medicare and Irma to think about. Now you have a floating beginning date of retirement uh, RMDs. You have QCDs that started at a different time. You have social security that starts at a different time, depending on when you take it. So. The year to year and all of these things are interconnected and there's trade-offs that need to be made. So, you know, so we're winners in the sense
0: that there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of ways to optimize, but man, it's also going to be going to be a lot of work. I'm really transparent about that. I I joke with with clients that sometimes it feels as if lobbyists in Washington, D.C. are just making things and, and, and you know, Congress and Senate are making things incredibly complex just so... You have to you have to hire CFPs and CPAs. <laughs> um, and yeah, I joke about that. but it is truly unbelievable just how different tax legislation and retirement plan laws ha- have changed in the past 15, 20 years. Jared, you touched on this, but oh my goodness, if there are if there is a, a, a married couple retiring, and they're different ages. So Irma gotta, gotta consider your Medicare premiums uh, based on your modified adjusted gross income starting at age 63. And then spouse number two will also need to consider that when they turn 63. And then how do you measure that with the golden window that is now moved from 70 all the way to 73, 74, 75? But then that's also the time of life that you typically inherit retirement accounts from your parents. And so when do you need to take those distributions? And should you do capital gains uh, harvesting or should you be more concerned with moving pre-tax accounts to Roth accounts? And then if you have concentrated positions, uh, well, how much of those should be gifted to charity versus how much should be diversified and and sold and kept on your balance sheet? Uh, And then, I mean, not to mention, we're definitely going to see more estate law changes in the coming years. So as the estate exemption goes down how much of your how much of your assets should remain in your estate versus what assets should you remove from your estate for long-term planning and then oh we didn't even talk about this QCDs that's another charitable tax planning opportunity those are apparently still at 70 and a half and don't go don't change with the other dates so yeah, Jared. There's just a million moving parts, and um, like I often joke with people, it it really is crazy. It is if we just make this stuff so complicated that people want to go hire advisors because there's just such a such a you know impossible task of learning the parts of of retirement plan law that are relevant to you. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's almost like there's, there's like a golden
1: era and now there's a golden era at light, right? Like now you have like no income up until 70, potentially when RMDs start or uh, up until social security starts, but then you have little income. So you might still have some opportunity, but it's just lesser because, you know, the contributions of the social security started. So it's going to be interesting, but all in all, I think there are some opportunities. I think there are some changes and your income plan, should not stay the same in light of this, right? The game is changing, but you know we're also mindful of, man, this is a lot. So if you have any questions about how this applies to your specific situation, or if there was a piece of legislation that you thought was important to oil and gas uh, retirees that we didn't mention uh, in the, in here, uh, let us know and we'd be happy to talk about it. Podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. We'd love to hear from our listeners.
0: And if you're watching us, you know you see that I'm wearing a K State polo. If you want to talk some trash about the Alabama Crimson Tide, you know beating us handily, you can do that too. But it's all good. I admire the humility because you've been you've been on the K State when
1: things have been on the rise. So I appreciate you accommodating. I I went to the Liberty Bowl uh, while we're while we're uh, taking the L from college football. I went to the Liberty Bowl, and if anybody knows that game. Uh, Arkansas blew a 15-point lead with three minutes left and the ball. And I left because I thought we had it in the bag. So I left that game early and missed the uh, triple overtime. The outcome ended up being good, but I watched uh, the three overtimes from a bar with a bunch of people that had also left the game because they thought it was in the bag. So uh got, got served
0: a slice of humble pie this college football bowl season. So. Glad the Razorbacks took care of uh, KU though. So good, good, good game there for sure. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.